Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. In his first appearance before a um, a Jewish audience, at least that's what it says here, uh, addressing 1,500 guests on the occasion of the Jewish Cares 25th anniversary dinner in London. The Duke of Cambridge said, during a year when many in the Jewish community have had cause to feel under threat for no reason other than simply the fact of your Jewishness, your unity is all the more precious. Your commitment and loyalty to one another and to society more widely is ultimately what keeps you strong. Malcolm, isn't it nice to have an international figure like this actually acknowledge and and tell us that there is great Jewish unity out there. Well, I guess he listens to the show, so he recognizes <laughs> how important unity is. But I think that uh, it's it's not something that's that unusual to hear that kind of comment from uh, people who look at our community and perceive uh, the, the unity and the sense of oneness that we feel. That despite the, the immense differences fact is that we come together like perhaps no one else in the world, no other group, who, and because we recognize a common destiny and a common fate, that you remember during the Soviet Jewry movement, people mm. invented conspiracy theories, as they did whenever Jews stood up for other Jews, saying, look, we don't march and demonstrate for Baptists, for Christians who are being persecuted behind the, the Iron Curtain uh, as we're Jews. So there must be a conspiratorial theory behind it. There's got to be some sort of a, of a plot involved. And it has been true throughout our history. And unfortunately, sometimes Jews don't recognize the importance of the unity and the commonality of our interests despite whatever differences may exist. Oh, no question about it. And it's important to be reminded of it. Last week I mentioned that uh, someone had said to me that the only way to defeat Iran is with Jewish unity, and if we continue to give this message to the next generations, then uh, maybe we'll make some progress in this area. It is, in fact, the only way. You've got to be unified from within, Malcolm, before you start to try to make efforts uh, you know, on the outside. And with that in mind, by the way, and being unified and, of course, uh, being representative of the Jewish people in, a, in an appropriate fashion when it comes to other others in this world, what is the appropriate response, reaction, um, uh, emotion uh, that we should be uh, sending out um, uh, to other communities when a, uh, a terrible tragedy like the one that happened in the, uh, in the church in, in the Carolinas happened this week? Well, as you saw, the Jewish communities, uh, in the Jewish community organizations and the local Jewish community rose to the occasion, uh, not only offering assistance, but speaking out, because we recognize that hate has no limits. And when somebody acts and carries out uh, such a travesty, a tragic uh, event, that uh, we have to look at the causes of the hatred that, that uh, we all become victims of. It. Yeah. We all have to be on the front lines in this battle. And a lot of people, unfortunately, in our community, although some might find this hard to believe, don't always see that. But uh, especially if you're in a position of leadership, consider it. Consider how important it is to make the proper statements and to convey the proper message in the aftermath of an event like this. And some of the rabbis in our community may want to keep that in mind as they address their congregations 
tomorrow. Uh, first, for, speaking of other religions and groups, first Friday of Ramadan, anything of uh, of note, because sometimes we know, uh, especially on the first Friday and sometimes the last of Ramadan, there's activity on the Temple Mount that's uh, of violent nature. Any reports today on this first day of Ramadan? There were many, many people, and the uh, but but it seems that the uh, was peaceful. There were thousands, uh, tens of thousands, who actually uh, went. And um, from all the reports we have so far, is that it was peaceful. All right. Uh, last week, and we, I have a feeling we'll be speaking about this for a long time. I want to remind our audience that for about 10 years before anybody spoke about Islamic fundamentalism, Malcolm Holmline was speaking about it on a regular basis on this show. And I think the new one might be BDS because everybody out there, as we've been emphasizing, has a role uh, they can play in this war. And you have emphasized over the last month the importance of different groups, including government groups, taking action when it comes to BDS. I'm sure you're aware that the New York State Assembly has now passed an anti-BDS resolution. I am very much aware the principal sponsor was uh, Chuck Lemming from uh, Long Island. I've spoken to him about it. Our Lawfare Project has been working uh, on this uh, around the country, as have other groups. Uh, and I think this is uh, very important. I'd spoken to Governor Cuomo about this, and he was very supportive of the idea. It moved quickly and uh, in, uh, with great support across the board from all elements uh, i think the uh, uh, that reaction was very uh, significant you know that there was also a resolution in the city council of new york mm. uh, in the assembly it was only charles barron and i know that there are people talking about in the city council about doing the same ah. but uh, i think it was only charles barron and many people got up and spoke against them people from across the border and all uh, Aspects of the of the, the the constituency of the assembly. So it was really an important demonstration. There are 18 states now considering it. Uh, there are differences between some of the states. Some of them, uh, some of the resolutions they take pass don't have teeth. This has because it deals with pension funds, with business doing business with the state. It has uh, you know penalties that that uh, could impact businesses that succumb to the BDS. And we're finding more and more places, by the way, that are beginning to wake up to, as you said, something we've been trying to get people to pay attention to. But everybody yawned when we said BDS. Today, people uh, use the term as if it's a uh, common language. Uh, but you know that in Sweden, where this was, they were at the forefront of all this effort, they have reversed that policy now. And the government came out against it and warned companies, uh, particularly one um, one uh, set up one supermarket chain of the uh, stores uh, right. that that uh, had agreed to to participate in the boycott and warned them that if they did they would not have business with the government etc. So this is the first time that we're seeing real reversals in countries where I guess they would say that they were at the forefront of the right. Yeah, in the Swedish case, you know, you, you hate to see it because of economic pressure, but okay, that's what it takes, right? It, it was economic pressure, but it doesn't matter. Most right. they, they, there's counter pressures as well. That's what they were using. Right, no question. So this is very important that the, that they took an official action, and I hope it'll be replicated in other places. But there is a recognition increasing uh, around that the that acknowledges that BDS is in fact 
an anti-Semitic movement. And by the way, and this may be the, well, never a wrong time of year, maybe it may be a lighter time of year because the school year is just coming to an end, but as faculty and principals get ready for September and they try to, you know, rev up their Israel advocacy programs in their respective schools, you know, it, when, it, when, it come to, when it came to Islamic fundamentalism in Iran, you know, I don't know how many, you know, teenagers were motivated to, you know, get to the forefront of the movement, a la the Soviet jury movement, where, you know, you know, there was so much, uh, so much of it was dominated by the youth, thank God, and they were very effective, and they, they took great pride and really loved all the activities they were involved with and they coordinated. Here is an opportunity. I see it. I see it among Jewish teens in our area. Uh, there are many of them who are be- becoming motivated by this whole BDS push to push back and to form groups and to arrange protests and rallies and to speak to their own local councils, legislatures, etc. The youth can play a ve- and they're very enthusiastic about it. The youth can play a very, and it's easy to understand as well. Sometimes with Iran, it's not as simple. The youth can play a very vital role in all of this moving forward. Absolutely, and we still have to get it through the New York State Senate. And importantly, we want to see Congress move on this issue as well as on a, I'd say, related issue, and that is the definition of anti-Semitism that the State Department uh, has adopted, which is the very forthcoming. Uh, The EU has done the same, by the way. But we want to see the Department of Education, for instance, the U.S. Department of Education, adopt this language so that on campuses that receive federal funding, there will be a standard against which they can be matched, and that includes BDS and anti-Israel activities. It doesn't mean criticism of a policy of Israel or that people can't have differences, but that is not what BDS and what what this law would would cover. So there are important efforts, and as you said, their voices count, their voices will be heard as much as anyone else's if they speak up on it. And it's difficult for you to do all this yourself, but uh, as you did years ago when it comes to issues like this, if there are schools or groups or large gatherings, especially those who coordinate these big trips and stuff, that want to be addressed by somebody and be inspired, if you can't do it yourself, you'll help them find the appropriate person to come and inspire the group. And we just want to see this become a real, you know, just pick up momentum and, and really develop into a into a movement. Because if the youth don't get involved to the degree they have in past causes, like I mentioned, Soviet jury, then it's never going to reach the, the point where we want, we were wanted to reach. And part of it is, is uh, really what happens in school, the education that they get about uh, these issues. Right now we're dealing with several really vital, long-term, consequential issues like BDS and the campaign against anti-Semitism, which unfortunately we see growing all over, the campaign against the growth of international terrorism, ISIS and others, and of course the leader of the international cabal of terrorism, Iran. And we're coming closer and closer to deadlines on it. But also when we see that the International Criminal Court has said that the Palestinians next week are going to file or present their first file against Israel uh, to the chief prosecutor, uh, Fatou Bensouda, who has interestingly told the Palestinians that, understand, you are going to be the subject also of an investigation, that if we investigate Israel, we're going to do you as well for war crimes. And as we know, the war crimes on the Palestinian side in Gaza, the Hamas, and using the um, people as civilian shields 
and using children, especially as human shields in, against Israeli bombing and targeting Israeli civilians as opposed to Israel, which clearly, and in reports that they have put out, show that they tried to avoid civilian casualties. The numbers of casualties is half of what the U.N. report that will come out today or uh, this weekend uh, will show that the, the complete distortion about uh, the steps that Israel took which an international commission of, of generals, uh, former chiefs of staff from Britain, Germany, etc., came to Israel, studied it, and said hey, they they go far beyond. And some of them are critical about how much uh, the, the extent to which Israel has instituted precautions. And yet, this issue, which people will dismiss, the International Criminal Court, as you said, with BDS, people just dismiss it. When I tell them, look, this is really important. Even members of Congress, you know, they they say, oh, the UN, who cares? Yeah. It matters. That's where all of these things find their roots. And once they they get in and, and they have the imprimatur of an international body, it gives them legitimacy. And by the way, I said to you a few weeks ago that it seems every time we get into this area of the calendar, we're always starting to talk about the U.N. And the truth is, I'm sure you'd agree that the work that you're doing now will affect what, in fact, does happen in September when everyone's going to be outraged when something happens at the U.N. they don't like. So now is when the work's got to be done. You're absolutely, we are targeting it. We are working it now very hard, uh, not only because uh, of that, but because we know that uh, we could face some very serious maneuvers at the Security Council, including, you know, the plan that France, New Zealand, others have suggested uh, to, to present a framework time timeline, perhaps impose deadlines for talks between Israel and the Palestinians, even though you see this week that the Palestinians announced the, that the PA would dissolve, it, 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 and he did, they don't mean that the Palestinian Authority per se will, will dissolve, but the unity government between the PA, including Hamas, that has been dissolved because mm-hmm. they can't get along and because Hamas is not letting them into the, into Gaza anyway, and they don't want the burden, so they announced that they, so how can Israel negotiate when they themselves can't find common cause? Right, and, and, and that, because I was confused when I read this, that leads to a more likely scenario where ISIS can move in if, if there's a rift between Hamas and the PA, or has nothing to do with that? No, it does have something to do with it. You're touching on something very interesting, because there was a report that showed that ISIS now enjoys 14% support in Gaza may sound very low, but this is growing, and it started off at 1 or 2%, and they also are showing uh, similar growth in, uh, in the Sinai Peninsula. So this is, this, they do take advantage of the, of the splits. They do take advantage of the divisions that exist and exploit any unrest in any, uh, and because the uh, government, the PA itself, is seen as corrupt and unpopular, Hamas took advantage of one point. Now Hamas is seen in the same light, and therefore ISIS is taking. It's called IS in Jerusalem. Mm. Uh, the the ISIS presence there. We don't. You know, no one ever knows how big it really is. But the fact that they fired some rockets that they were challenging Hamas is exactly that. That they take advantage of the situation. Hamas has tried to kill them and has tried to to go after some of them because. Uh, not because they're concerned about the attacks on Israel, but because they see it as a threat to their 
their legitimacy and their hegemony over the people of Gaza. Yeah, <laughs> soon Hamas will be the moderates in this entire picture, and they'll be yelling at Israel for not negotiating with them. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. All right, allow me for a moment to put words in your mouth, Mr. Honline. If Michael Oren, the former ambassador, was with you now, you might say to him, you know, your comments and observations about the relationship between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu would likely have been better. It would have been better if you would have made these observations and released your book once both had left their positions. Would that be something you might say to him? No, I don't think so. Um there are a lot of questions about the, some of the comments. They're, they're very strong and harsh. And, you know, when, when you use uh, the, the economy that he presented, that both mistakes were made on both sides, but on one side it's deliberate and that, uh, that President Obama has abandoned Israel. What is, to me, the most interesting outcome is a poll that will show today that I think 50% of Israelis agree with Warren. Now, I think on a diplomatic front, and, and uh, for given the current tensions, this doesn't help, but it does put in very stark terms exactly what the situation is and how he, having sat at the, at the uh, pinnacle of the relationship between the United States and Israel, that and his unique perspective, and it's not stuff that he said when he was the ambassador, uh, that, and as an historian and somebody who doesn't come from Likud uh, and was not seen as that close to, to, the, uh, to the government, to Netanyahu, uh, coming from him, I think it's given greater credence and certainly greater uh, examination of, of the charges. Yeah, but if you felt that this was, you know, in the bigger picture for the people of Israel, for Israel advocates... Around the world, if this would be, if if this would only be causing problems or creating more of a rift between Washington and Jerusalem, might you not advise one to just table the discussion for a couple of years? Look, it sounds like the way you're reacting. It sounds like this might be good for the whole mix. This might be a good thing to shake things up. Look, I don't think we need anything now that adds tensions or. Further drives wedges between the United States and Israel. Right now, we need to bring things back together. The two have too much in common, too much, too many common interests. But at the same time, when people only put the onus on Netanyahu and blame him for everything that has happened, I think this book balances that somewhat. And 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 frankly, if there's a truth, it's not for me to say whether that truth should come out now or should come out later. It's sometimes it's a question of how you phrase it, and and as I've not yet read the book, I have it, and I will. Uh, so I don't know how much of the phrasing in the press is his, or how much of it is reporters, you know, uh, interpolating what he had to say. But you know, he's an, he's a, a serious observer. It's not something uh, that can be dismissed. Its impact is going to be very clear. As I said, if, if that those are the numbers in Israel, uh, according to this uh, poll that was done in the last few days, uh, it tells us that there is a serious problem, and the people of Israel, uh, I don't think you've ever seen numbers like this when it comes to, at least recently, in terms of the, the trust level uh, with the president, 
then it's, it's stuff that if you expose it, you have a chance of addressing it. Yeah, my point is only that it's bad timing, but you say it may not, it may not be necessarily bad well, timing. Well, I, I do agree that this is not the time when we need to add to the tensions between the United States and Israel. The Prime Minister you know, didn't authorize this. Uh, as you know, Cajalon did come out against it, and he's the head of the party to which, uh, Oren, uh, which Oren belongs and, and is a member of the Knesset uh, through him. Uh, but the prime minister did not, and seems to have refused to to disassociate or criticize uh, Oren at this point. Any reaction from Washington? I mean, the White House is not going to acknowledge anything in this regard, right? No, there are people uh, like Dan Shapiro, the ambassador to Israel, who has been very sharply critical, saying that he was at some of those same meetings and that it's not a correct account of, of what took place. You know, I don't expect that you will see Ambassador Oren invited to too many White House uh, <laughs> dinners in the near coming future. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? <laughs> he will be on a national tour, uh, you know, and too many people just dismiss it cynically as saying, look, he's just selling books and you don't sell books unless you get attention and you create controversy. Uh, but he has a, he's a young guy and he has a long future, so he knows there is an inherent in this. So if he was simply trying to get across a message and sound a warning that we have another what, 570 days, 60 days of, the, of this with this administration. Sounds like you're counting, Malcolm. Uh, I don't count. Uh, <laughs> this is Spiros uh, Obama. Spiros administration. And by the way, what do you think of Donald Trump tossing his hat into the ring? He may be the next president. Um, that would be an interesting choice, no? I certainly think that this is an interesting array of Republican candidates. I think he's somebody who will get a lot of attention. He could affect the debate. He takes very strong positions, as you saw, and he's not afraid to say things, even things he hasn't thought through before. A lot of potent foreign policy positions, by the way. A, a lot, and more than others. Uh, you know, I saw a study that showed the percentage of time being given to foreign affairs issues at a time when America is facing such serious challenges. I think it's inevitable, especially regarding Iran in the coming weeks as we get closer uh, to the to the deadline and the examination of issues. We see the, the blowback now because of Secretary Kerry's comments uh, about uh, saying that we're not fixated on the on, on deadline, on certain timing. Uh, he wrote to Senator Lindsey Graham saying that, that he didn't mean that the PMD, which is past military developments or potential military developments, meaning how what Iran did before, and especially about their their the, the military dimension of the nuclear program, and they have said that all their military sites are going to be off limits, and the indications were from some of the reports that the administration is accepting that, and coming on top of some of the other. Uh, what appear to be concessions uh, to the Iranians, Secretary Kerry's comments caused a storm. And for three days this week, it was the lead issue in all of the State Department uh, press briefings. And their position kept shifting over the days until Kerry's uh, denial of, of the reports that he didn't mean to say that they weren't fixated on it. He understood it. So me- meaning... Me- given up on this issue. Meaning they would prefer... If he gave the impression that there was a hard June 30th deadline, it, it, it is not about the deadline. It is about, there is it, the, there is no deadline, and I doubt that we're going to see June 30th. Uh, we already see enough indications. The Iranians would like it kicked down the road. I think they would like altogether not to have 
a, a deal as much as to have reach understandings and then just continue to coast because they're gaining a lot during this time. And we see the, the conferences. There was one in London of the world national uh, oil companies um, that that uh, people from the major oil companies were swamping the Iranian representatives talking about you know future deals. So when we talk about the snapback provision, it's clear that that's going to be very difficult, that once you have these deals in place, they're not going to uh, essentially fall apart or, or be canceled right away. Right. But, that, but this was not about the question of the deadline. This was a question of whether the United States, as when the president appeared to give up on the military option and on other things that Senator Corker, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, wrote to the president about, that these main elements of what it was supposed to be the core of the American position seems to be uh, seems to be eroded. Now the secretary uh, has clearly said to him that he, it's not what he meant. He, we are continuing to press about past military developments and about some of the other issues that about getting access to the facilities. And I've heard from people in bomb talks that there's only 50-50 chance that they'll reach a deal in June or even immediately thereafter. Others are saying that uh, it could be even harder, that the, that the differences on a lot of the key issues, despite even if these concessions were real, right. that uh, despite this, they're still uh, far apart. And the core of what this, the Secretary had said was that we have the knowledge that we know what they're doing, when in fact the former CIA head, Michael Hayden, and others said we don't know. I mean, if we knew all these things, and right. why is it important? Because if you don't have this information, we have no baseline against which to measure. If we don't know how far they have come, we won't. The inspectors aren't going to know what to look for. And if the military sites are off base, meaning forbidden from the inspections regime, then all of the, what we'll do is shift everything there. Much of it, we believe is there even now. Yeah, I got that. In the military facility. Prime Minister Netanyahu this past weekend, when he addressed these concessions and, you know, expressed his objection to them, uh, I thought he was specifically talking about the rush to get to June 30th. You're saying one has nothing to do with the other. The, the, the Israeli position was don't feel bound by this June 30th deadline because right. their fear is that under the pressure of a deadline, they'll make a bad deal just to be able to have a deal. And he's saying don't feel bound and you shouldn't We'd rather see the talks be extended than end up with a deal that uh, you know would be a bad one. Yeah, no deal better than a bad deal. We've heard that many, many times. Uh, you got to explain the Morsi situation to me. I understand that he was sentenced to death by an Egyptian court, right? And he was um, he was he was democratically elected, whatever that means in quotation marks, in Egypt, correct? A regular regular election, and eventually, and the Muslim Brotherhood at that point is essentially during his regime, essentially controlling Egypt, right? Right. And then he, he's how does he leave? By what method does he leave office? It's a coup. Well, essentially a coup. Uh, but a military coup, elected. right? And the question is whether he was really democratically elected, whether Muslim Brotherhood didn't carry on all sorts of uh, nefarious activities that led to, to uh, that resulted in the election, and there was a lot of corruption, and in the year that he was there, that he engaged in all sorts of activities that were seen as harmful to the Egyptian economy, Egyptian security, etc. And it was, that was grounds, and that he was guilty of uh, crimes, 
crimes against humanity, I guess, because of what the Muslim Brotherhood did it, under his uh, leadership, killing many people and being responsible for the deaths of people. So I assume that's the basis on which the, he was prosecuted uh, and sentenced. It doesn't mean that they will carry out the death uh, penalty. Right, yes, it happened uh, in other cases. Uh, the, and maybe just locking him up and not letting him be a martyr would be a better uh, Root for them at this point. I guess my question is: Is Egypt the exception? Would would we see this type of trial in other Middle Eastern countries? Sure, and we do all the time. And the look, Egypt is not uh, is not the model of human rights yet. And, and there are many complaints. The American government has registered them. Others have, not just in regard to this, but we also have to look at the circumstances. Uh, in which uh, uh, President Sisi is operating, and and in some of the other countries where the the uh, actions of governments when dealing with this kind of a terror, these kind of terrorist threats, whether it's in the Central Asian countries, for instance, and others, who come under very sharp criticism and even sanctions from the United States uh, at a time when they are trying to be pro-Western, they're trying to throw off the yoke of these Islamist uh, terrorist uh, threats, and uh, I think you have to cut up some slack. At the same time, we press for, you know, human rights improvements and, and uh, movements and for all the guarantee of the rights that we all take for granted. Should Egypt be applauded for sentencing Morsi to death? No, it's not a question of applauding or not applauding. Egypt, the government obviously is taking actions against the Muslim Brotherhood. They have sworn to destroy it. The American government has supported the Muslim Brotherhood being included in the government. And in Egypt is seen as a backer and supporter, which is very detrimental to America's uh, image and the, and the feelings towards it in uh, in Egypt, but also in other parts of the Middle East who look at that and think that we are too cozy. And when they, when members of the Muslim Brotherhood are received at the State Department or at the White House, as has happened recently, uh, it causes an uproar there. At the same time, there are legitimate concerns and legitimate issues that are raised there and in other countries, but it's a question of weighing the priorities and and seeing the context in which some of these things take place. Was the uh, number two man in Yemen's chapter of ISIS killed this week? It appears. America's, uh, the United States is responsible for that, right? It seems so, or at least uh, equipment that may have been manufactured in the United States. Yeah. What do you What do you think? I mean, you've told us that you've described for us over the last few weeks the terrible situation that Yemen is in right now, and I understand that you know one one man's assassination may not change much, but I mean, the you know the world doesn't pay much attention to this at all, and it seems they're always getting. You know, they're always getting one of these um, ISIS operatives, but never taking out the leader of the entire group. A uh, lot more number twos than number ones, usually, is what we're hearing. And we've heard many reports, and some of which proved to be true and, not, and some not true. We saw the case recently of a uh, Hamas terrorist leader who actually turns out alive when they thought he had been killed. Um, sometimes they, they put out reports of people being killed to get the West off their backs and not to have dr- drones following them. Uh, but this is a case that appears to be true. Okay, so my question is, is that made... It's it- important because, you you know, you can only kill a snake by cutting off its head. And here, if you don't cut off the, the leaders, if you don't at the same time try to stop the recruitment and stop the, the supply of weapons, etc., 
but going after the leadership of terrorist entities is a legitimate and necessary step on the part of the West. Does the enemy suffer a setback? You would yes. say yes. Absolutely. Simple as that. A fifth suspect pleaded not guilty in a Brooklyn federal court for his alleged role in a plot to aid ISIS. An Uzbek national was charged with attempted conspiracy to provide material support to the organization back Thursday, June the 11th. I bring this up just to remind everybody, and I know you like to emphasize it, that you know the enemy is in our backyard, so to speak, and it's not one person. In this case, it's already up to five in this specific case. And this is Brooklyn. You know, this is essentially our backyard. You know, as many times as we try to tell them and try to tell people, not not just in the Jewish community, government officials, others, that uh, about this issue and about the growth of the presence here of Islamist entities and of terrorist-linked uh, groups. And when there were cases in Brooklyn over the years, and I would bring them up and people say, oh, it's so depressing. It's all. Because if you leave it go, then the re- it keeps spreading. It's a cancer that metastasizes and spreads and affects many more people. It's really critical that we uh, uh, act against them, that the law enforcement infiltrate, use whatever means necessary. We, we keep cutting back on the freedom of, of the, uh, movement for a lot of the security services, including the police, and dealing with uh, some of these uh, groups. Because they, they operate from within society. They use the cover of civilian society to establish themselves and to raise funds. It was that one ice cream guy, if you remember, had raised $20 million right. for terrorist entities for Hezbollah uh, in, in uh, Brooklyn, I think it was alleged. And he was convicted and many more. And because it becomes so commonplace, these trials, this is four people arrested here in this case. But how many cases do we have of kids? Now being being enlisted and being uh, either to go to, to ISIS from America or being involved in potential terrorist activities. Malcolm, question on the NSN app: How significant is the Adelson Saban coalition in the fight against BDS? Well, we'll have to see. This is an early stage, and they brought people together, had them all, you know, do dog and pony shows, and I, I don't know enough to say what, what will happen. And finally, I read the Caroline Glick piece. I mean, do, do you agree with her assessment that Israel has um, ha- has looked at the region, um, it, 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 has looked at the region of its neighbors, has looked at the Middle East um, as one general Arab population? If Israel would view it in the, you know, specific groups and all the different you know, um, uh, all the different groups that the that the Arab population has, they would make more progress. In other words, uh, in this case, she's talking about that if there was a better relationship, and if they use the Druze community more to their advantage, there could be bridges built between Israel through the Druze community uh, to other groups like the Druze in places like Syria, etc. Well, I think in the case of the Druze, uh, Israel has tried to. Uh, maintain a relationship has done things which don't make it into the press that that uh, in this current circumstance where the Jews have been targeted and uh, because the war is coming sometimes closer to the Golan and the populations the Jews are not just in the Golan by the way they are heavily concentrated in other areas but that population now found itself um, under tremendous pressure the lack of food etc Israel has tried to help Israel issued warnings that they would uh, not to attack them and to protect them uh, but they don't want to just open the border to have an influx of people. They have provided aid from the Druze community in Israel, 
provided uh, 10 million shekels in, in assistance. Israel has also been providing assistance. But the point you're making is right, that we can't look at the Middle East as a monolith. You don't look at all of the groups involved as a monolith. Too often they've been driven together into an anti-Israel position because of the pressures of the regimes in which in the countries in which they're founded. But I can tell you that we have contact with leaders of many groups and in, in Syria, for instance, right now, and, and outreach by them, initiated by them, um, to, to talk to us and talk to the Jewish community. Of course, they all want to be pro-Israel until they get elected or they get into power. <laughs> but it, the point is right, that it's not a monolithic region, that even within each country, Turkey, for instance, you can't condemn all the people of Turkey because they have a regime led by this crazy man, Erdogan, who's now very frustrated because of, of the outcome of the election. Uh, but there is a changing attitude in, in, in parts of the Middle East, in part because of, of practical realities, in part because of America's perceived withdrawal, that Israel looms much larger, and that they have this common interest, especially against Iran. So Israel, I think, doesn't just look at the, them in, uh, as, a, as a monolithic group, but certainly the Druze, there are anti-Israel Druze. There are also pro-Israel Druze, and certainly the Druze in Israel, some of, uh, many serve in the army and are very loyal to the to the state. But um, it's also good news. You know that the three thousandth B'nai Menashe member, the, the Jews from India, arrived this week in Israel. Wow, that's pretty amazing. We talk about the Kabbatzenu Yachad Me'arbakan Fota Aretz, don't we? Absolutely. The ingathering of the exiles in the center of the world, for at least for our world, and that's of course Israel. And look what happens. Look what's going on. Just amazing. By the way, have you contacted Ban Ki Moon? About his statements regarding Gaza's children in Israel? Sure. We regular touch with them and You know why I say that? I I I remember how heartwarming it was, and I think you would describe it the same way, if not tell me, when he was at your dinner and seemed to be prideful being there and addressing the crowd and was an admirer of your work and the conference's work in general, and then he makes these statements and it makes me feel like, Hey, isn't that the same guy who was so friendly that night? <laughs> but anyway. No the, he, 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 this guy, is, it's a complex situation, Right. even by Israeli diplomats and others' assessment that he is not hostile. He's, he's often a vi- uh, becomes a victim of the people around him. That does not excuse it. We hold him to account for what he says, for what he fails to do. We do it publicly. We do it privately. We do it through activities at the U.N. Uh, we don't dismiss it. You can never dismiss what happens at the U.N. We have to hold his feet to the fire, but at the same time, in the last uh, three weeks, he issued two or three really important statements uh, about both about the investigations and about uh, some of the activities against Israel. So it is, and, and Israelis are being appointed now to to somebody. An Israeli official was appointed to a key position at the Fifth Commission this week. You know there are contradictory uh, things that go on, uh, and where he personally may be is not necessarily reflected. He becomes the, the hostage of uh, of the United Nations, which is why, again, the counter pressure by us, by others, friends, and I can tell you that there are people in the Iran in the UN administration who have been very supportive and who work with us, who advise us on the steps to take, and have helped us see problems long before they surface. Right. All right, Malcolm. Great report as usual. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak Good again next week. Everybody.
There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update podcast information on the homepage at jmnam.org. Go to the news section for that. And uh, weekly update Friday, 7.40 Eastern Time on these airwaves and around the world on the web and, of course, the NSN